we find ourselves at the pinnacle in this chapter of David's life. This is the mountaintop. This is the peak. This is where he has been ascending through all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all of the pain and suffering that he has experienced has led to God preparing him for the palace as the king. And now as he's just been faithful and faithful in responding to God and God's faithfulness, we find him at the top and he is going to soon crash and burn. If you know anything about chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, maybe you've heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. Uriah's wife, who he would see witness bathing on the roof of her house, and he would inquire who is she. He is told that she is the wife of another guy. Yeah, got a husband. You ain't got no business, David. Oh, is that so? Send her to my house. Send her to the palace. David commits adultery with her tries to bring Uriah in to sleep with his wife as he is out to battle at war so that he can try to cover his tracks. Doesn't work. He has more honor than the king. He sleeps on the porch of the palace. Wouldn't even go to his house. Even as David tries in a second attempt to get him drunk, same thing. Uriah is not falling for it. And you just see the spiral of David's life and... It's interesting because at the pinnacle right here of what we're going to look at, 2 Samuel chapter 10, you see that God is trying to let him know, David, there's a war that's waging. There's a battle. And you need to be on the front lines of that battle, David, not hiding out, not resting, not pretending that there's not a war all around you. And so the things that we can learn from this for our lives is definitely impactful. And so we're going to see... What takes place in this chapter? 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. The Bible says, And it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And so Ammon would be an enemy of the nation of Israel. Um, The king dies of Ammon, and his son is going to take the place of his father and take the throne. And so we're told that in that place, we're not told how old he is. I would imagine he's young. I don't know how young. There were some people who would take the throne as young as 12 in the times that we're reading about. I don't think he's a kid, but I definitely think he's young as we will continue to go on and read and and discover. Verse 2, Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So somewhere in David's life, this guy's father was kind to David. You'll remember last chapter, David sought out a descendant of Jonathan and Saul just to show him kindness. It would be the tradition of the king who would take the throne to wipe out the old family, right? The old regime. So that there wouldn't be somebody who can usurp the throne and take that power. David doesn't do that. He's seeking somebody out from the family line of Jonathan. He finds Mephibosheth, one of my all-time favorite characters in all of the Bible, because I identify with Mephibosheth so well. Being lame from a fall and having the king of kings seek me out and set me up and pull me up to his table. I'm just blessed by the story of Mephibosheth. And so again, that's last chapter, chapter 9 in 2 Samuel that we read about that. 
two chapters prior to that, remember it was in David's heart to be able to do something for God. He looked around at his palace. He realizes, man, God has is, God is really blessed me. I dwell in a house of, made of cedars, cedar wood. And God, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant has nowhere to, you know, lay its head, if you will. God has no house. I'm going to build him a house. He goes to the prophet Nathan. He lets Nathan know, hey, man, this, just put, this has been put on my heart. I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, hey, whatever's in your heart, go ahead and do it. And then Nathan tells David, uh, God tells Nathan to tell David, that's not in the plans. It's not going to work out. He can prepare to build me a house, but his hands have blood. He's a man of war, and we're not going to have that. So David doesn't get hurt, or he's not like, you know, demolished by that. He says, man, I'll do for God whatever God lets me do. He, he begins to just, you know, raise up money, if you will, and gives that to his son Solomon. We're going to see later. Uh, and Solomon is the one that's going to build God a house. He'll build the temple, and it'll be the greatest uh, of the temples. And so you just see this, this history of David having all these battles, David having all these wars, wars, David realizing that his life is difficult. But in the midst of all that difficulty, what David did was he constantly had his eyes on the Lord. He constantly looked, looked to God in the midst of that, in, in that preparation of what God was doing. And now in this, the midst of what's going on, now he realizes, man, you know what? I've been so blessed. And, and I acknowledge and recognize I've been blessed to be a blessing. So he seeks out to bless God and just thank him for all that he's done. Then he seeks out Mephibosheth, the descendant of Jonathan, to bless him. And here we see this, this guy's, this kid's dad dies, the king of Ammon. And David seeks him out to be able to bless him. And so I just see kind of that's what's taking place here. Um, verse 3, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Um, this is an unfortunate thing. So you have this new king whose dad just died. He's grieving that loss. And then you have these counselors of his, these friends of his, these men that somehow are influential in his life. And they recognize that as David sends some men to be able to minister and bless uh, this guy, Hanan, they're saying, hey, hey David, David's not really looking to, to be a blessing to you. Uh, David's probably spying you out. He wants to destroy you. And that's a lie. The truth of the matter is, within David's heart, he wants to bless this guy. Because his father, at one time, had showed kindness to David. Be very, very careful who's in your ear. Be very, very careful who speaks to you. There are people in our lives that we have no control over. Sometimes places at work. Sometimes family members. Individuals that speak, they don't speak things of God. They don't speak of the direction that God would have us to go in. And so this guy has that. Again, the title of the message, Foolish Counsel. These guys are giving foolish counsel to this young king and he's going to heed it and it's going to destroy him and so we as God's kids need to be careful we need to be careful that we of who the people speak to us are but also of who we allow we, hopefully we have somebody in our life if not one person multiple people that are willing to hold a mirror up for us 
that are willing to speak the truth in love to us. In this case, we can't discern or we don't know why these guys told the king this. Hanan. Liars lie. Maybe they have a habitual problem with lying. Haters hate. A snake bites. If you have people in your life, and and you've probably witnessed this if you've been on earth long enough. If you have people in your life who you watch attack, 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 vicious, vicious, vicious to others, it's only a matter of time before that snake turns on you and bites you. Only a matter of time. Because the nature of a snake is a snake. And so, again, sometimes we have to work with those people. Sometimes, unfortunately, those people are in our very families. But it's just a matter of time because that's what snakes do. Snakes bite. And so hopefully we can be an influence in the people that we have to maintain a relationship with, right? But hold those people at at arm's length. Be careful that you take the counsel of those types of individuals. So these individuals tell him this. This is his response, verse 4. Then Hanan took David's servants... So these are ambassadors for David. He sends these men to go and greet this king. And this is what they, what they do to him. Shave off half of their beards. Cut off their garments in the middle. At their buttocks. I didn't know buttocks was in the Bible. There it is right there. It's crazy. New King James Version. That's crazy. And sent them away. Everything that they did to these men was to bring them to shame. Embarrass them. In today's vernacular, punk them, marginalize them, make them feel emasculated. With the value, one of the commentaries uh, I read this week says, with the value universally set upon the beard by the Hebrews and other Oriental nations as being man's greatest ornament, the cutting off of one half of it was the greatest insult that could have been offered to to the ambassadors and through them to David their king. Kiel and Delas, I can't read his name, Uh, one of the commentaries. Another one, Clark writes, The beard is held in high respect in the East. The possessor considers it his greatest ornament, often swears by it, and in matters of great importance, pledges it. Nothing can be more secure than a pledge of this kind. Its owner will redeem it at the hazard of his life. And so what they're doing is they're just shaming them, shaming them to the greatest degree. In that culture, if you had a clean, shaven face, it was a sign that you were a servant, a slave. And so these guys aren't slaves. These guys are ambassadors for the king. And they were sent by the king to be able to go and bless this guy's son, who his father had just passed away. And in response to that, they're shamed. I don't know what it's been, but at least the last year or so, year and a half, the Lord has been showing me that the plan and the strategy of the enemy is always to bring shame into our lives. It could be shame from our past. It could be shame from the mistakes that we make. It could be shame for the fact that we're human and our humanity at times is exposed. But the enemy who wants to shame us is in contradiction to what God wants to do. The incredible dignity and respect that God gives us as people is something to behold. And we come in contact with that when we live in the reality of God that we need to walk in humility. 
We need to be, have, have a good assessment of where we're at. So not only did they cut half of their beards off, but it says they cut their garments in the middle, not only exposing their backside, but their front side as well. And who were these men? These men were Hebrews. These men were from the nation of Israel. It would expose that they were Jews through circumcision. And so again, just an opportunity for the enemy to punk God's kids. Verse 5, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. What does David the king do? He goes to meet with these men who have been put in a position of shame. And he tells them, you know what? I know this is shameful. Why don't you guys wait, in Jeru- wait before you come back to Jerusalem until your beards have grown? I don't want you guys to be shamed. And again, just like our king of kings, he doesn't want us to live in shame. Verse 6, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. And so what this king does is he realizes, sizing it up, uh-oh, we made David mad. David's army is pretty big. Our army is small, so I'm going to go out, and I got money, but I don't have fighting men. So with my money, I'll, I'll buy some fighting men. He did exactly what Jesus declared as we count the cost of discipleship in our lives. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 31 through 33, the Bible says, Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. And so Jesus is giving the example of exactly what this king did. He checks out David's army and says, wow, they have a lot and I have a little. So instead of sending a delegation of peace, hey, you know what, David? Man, I don't know what we were thinking, but we surrender to you. No, he doesn't do that. He goes out and purchases these other fighting men from other countries to fight against King David and the nation of Israel. Verse 7, now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. This is the first time in the Bible that David's group of men are called mighty men. They needed a leader like David to be able to become these mighty men, and David needed them to be a leader. You're not a leader if nobody's following These men didn't necessarily start as mighty men. Many were distressed, indebted, and discontent. People who followed David at Agilom Cave. 1 Samuel 22 verses 1 and 2 tell us. One of these mighty men was Adino Esnite. Famous for killing 800 men at one time. 2 Samuel 23 verse 8 tells us. Another was Jashabim. Who killed 300 men at one time. 1 Chronicles 11.11 tells us. Another was Benaniah, who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day and killed a huge Egyptian warrior with his own spear. 1 Chronicles 11.22 and 23 tells us. And so this group of hag-tag men, this group of discontent, misfits, 
a motley crew, if you will, this group of just nobodies is on the run while David is on the run. David and his leadership skills and what God is developing in him causes these men to go from all of these misfits to mighty men. Hanging out with the right people. Hanging out with the right leader. Hanging out with the right leadership can do incredible things for us. Verse 8. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrehab, Ishtab, and Maka were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him, before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in the battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may we, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. And so you have Joab, the leader of David's army, has one game plan. We're fighting and we're winning. His game plan isn't we're running. His game plan isn't we're, 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 we're going to retreat. And if you don't know it, we're in a war. We're in a battle. And to not know that you're in a battle is to lose to the battle that you're in. There are no passive people in the battle. You'll be a casualty if you are passive in the battle that you are in. There's an enemy. The enemy is real. The enemy is not going to change his strategy. He's not going to change up for you. He's not going to let up on you. His job, his, his, his desire, his will for your life is destruction. He wants to see you destroyed. That's the enemy. There's another enemy of the world. It's a system. The system that is run by the God of this world. Very deceptive. Very elusive. Very confusing at times just how to navigate through the world and its systems. As you watch the news... If anybody watched a glimpse of the news yesterday, what did you see? Angry people, mad at something, protesting something. And their solutions, all wrong, all wrong. Get rid of all the guns. Give everyone a gun. Give teachers a gun. A gun for you, a gun for you. Sounds like Oprah Winfrey show, huh? A gun for you, a gun for you. Part of the issue is the issue of the heart. Nobody's talking about the heart. Nobody's talking about these people that are killing people on a mass level have issues with their heart, that they need God. They need the peace of God to come upon them. And where are God's people to be able to communicate that to a world that is in such need of a message like that? And so, in the battle, the enemy is going to do what the enemy is going to do. The world is going to continue to be the world. The world that we live in is the enemy of God. The Bible says in 1 John, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. And so may, may, may we not live for this world, this temporal thing that just tantalizes. We also live in an enemy, our flesh. The devil's going to keep doing what the devil's going to do. The world's going to keep doing what the world can do. But our flesh is what we have control over. And when we begin to feed the flesh, 
It's a matter of time before that flesh will turn around and consume us and bite us back. So be very careful. You have control over the enemy that you live in, your flesh. Feed the Spirit. Spend time with God. Spend time in fellowship with godly people that know God's word, that know God's will, and can speak truth into your life. Okay? Can, can hold a mirror up for you to show you what needs to be affected in your life. And the mirror doesn't clean you, does it? It just shows you, right? We don't look in the mirror and see a smudge and then take the mirror off the wall and then, yeah, the mirror, I got this smudge. The mirror showed it to me. The mirror just reveals it. God's word just reveals the things that need to be taken care of in our life. So it's the Lord that cleanses those things, fixes those things as we surrender to him and, re- and confess those things to him. Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of, the, of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon any more. God gives the nation of Israel the victory up to this point. They're not done. They only got half. There's still a battle to fight. And again, if you know the next chapter, it says in the spring when kings really should be going out to battle, David stayed home. And so David, again, would reach the culmination of life right here. There had been a lot of little things in David's life. If you study and as you've gone through me through first and second Samuel with me, you've seen little chinks in his armor, little tiny cracks that he is allowed to remain open. And it's those very little things that the enemy is going to exploit. Kings were not to multiply wives, and David did just that. And so he has a thirst for illicit relationships. And that is exactly what the enemy is going to use as his downfall. The chapter ends with unfinished business at Rabbah. The offending Ammonites were still in their city, and Joab returned to Jerusalem. In the spring, King David sent Joab and the army out again to deal with Rabbah as he waited in Jerusalem. While he waited comfortably in Jerusalem, he fell into sin with Bathsheba. Many know about David's sin with Bathsheba and how it happened when David waited in Jerusalem when he should have led the battle at Rabbah. 2 Samuel 10 shows that God gave David a warning by showing it necessary for him to come out against the Syrians. 
David tried to leave the battle with Joab in 2 Samuel 10, but his army needed him, and God tried to show him that by blessings, when David did go out to battle, 2 Samuel 10 was God's gracious warning that David sadly wasted. When we find ourselves at a mountaintop, when we find ourselves in victory, when we find ourselves in a place where we realize, I'm so thankful to God, I'm so grateful to God, I've been blessed to be a blessing, because that's exactly where David is. He, He came to the place where he realized, man, I have so much. I'm so blessed by God. I've been blessed to be a blessing. When we find ourselves in that place, may we not retreat. May we not come to a place where we think the battle is over because that's when the enemy hits. That's when the attack is on. And that's when we need to be fortified. That's when we need to be on high alert. So take the mountaintops. Don't be afraid of the blessings. Don't be afraid of the wonderful things that God wants to bring into your life. But may we have a sobriety of mind to be able to know that when things are good, the enemy is just on the attack as when we struggle in the valley. The struggle in the valley causes us to what? Have to have our eyes on the Lord. Have to find that our strength is the Lord. Right? It's, it's, it's in those mountaintops sometimes, unfortunately, that we lose sight of that, and that's when the enemy comes on strong. So I think that's what this chapter is showing us. Now, the title of the message, Foolish Counsel. I want to read you a few verses. We'll close with this. But I want to read you a few verses of what the Bible says about the company that we keep. I feel that the church is in a very, very bad place. A very, very superficial place. We are veneer thin on depth. Veneer thin. So many people know so many things about a lot of things, but they're deep in very little things. Very few things. And if there's something that God wants us to understand, He wants us to understand that the company that we keep is vitally important. I look at the trajectory of my life as it went down paths that I had no business being on. I scratch my head and wonder, like, why did I do that? Where did that come from? Like, what was I thinking? And I'll go back inevitably each time and I'll see that there was a person that influenced me to do something stupid, to make that choice, to go down a path that I wasn't even, it wasn't even in my mind. Inevitably, I can look and I can trace it back to an influence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Like, like don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. The company that we keep, if it's bad, it will corrupt the good things that we want to do. It will influence the good things that we want to do. Choose your friends wisely. Parents, you're the overwhelming influence in your child's life. Take advantage of that as long as you can because you will lose it by 12 years old. What? No way. What? Can I just influence them forever and ever and ever? No. And it's not healthy if you did. You'd be a helicopter parent 
Or you'd be this overwhelming, overbearing, hovering mom or dad, and it's freaky. It's not bueno. It's not healthy for you or your kid. It's embarrassing is what it is. Take advantage of that influence for as long as the Lord allows you to have it. That's an awesome, awesome privilege, an awesome wonder. It's a beautiful thing. But understand this. Your influence will fame. Teach your kids that their worst enemy is looking in the mirror at them daily if they look in a mirror. Guys, we're our worst enemy. Nobody talks to us more than we talk to ourselves. And instead of running away from God because we are so bad, teach them to run to God when they realize that they're so bad. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if we have a sober-minded view of ourselves, recognizing I'm a sinner, then we can run to God in humility, and he's there for us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. There's two, two versions that I'm going to read you. The first one is in the New King James, and it says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In the New American Standard Bible, that very same verse says, where New King James says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. It says, a man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that seems like a almost opposite things, right? If I want to have friends, I must show myself friendly. All right. If I have too many friends, I'm going to come to ruin. What? How is that the same verse? Like, what were they thinking? Were one of the translators, like, doing something? How'd they they come up with that, right? Interesting. The Hebrew allows for both translations. It depends on the context of the situation. And so both are simultaneously true. First, if I want to have friends... I must actually be interested in people. Oh, darn, I hate people. Bummer. Right? Yeah, people are needy. Wow. People, I don't know. Yeah. If you want friends, you actually have to be interested in people. Otherwise, they're just going to be around you long enough to realize that you're self-absorbed, you're selfish, self-centered, narcissistic in your ways, and that's only going to last a little while. So if you actually want friends, and God encourages us to have friends, you must actually show a genuine interest in the people that you want to have as friends. Interest in their lives, interest in their struggles, interest in their joys, interest in their successes, interest in their defeats. You actually have to be connected to somebody long enough to be interested in their life, and that's friendship based on what the Bible is declaring. So a person who wants friends must show himself friendly, number one. Number two, a person with too many friends will soon come to ruin, right? A man of too many friends comes to ruin. You can't spread yourself too thin. Remember the days of MySpace back in the days? And so there I am in high school ministry working with high school kids. MySpace comes out and these people are like, man, I got 330 friends. Like, shut up. You ain't got 330 friends. You got like two friends, maybe, maybe, okay? You got other people that are just, they liked you or they just want to look like they have a lot of friends and you have a lot of friends. But those aren't your friends. 
When we spread ourselves out too thin, then we actually become less effective and those people influence us less as well. And so that's what it means that it will come, you'll come to ruin. We're less influenced by that multitude of people because nobody can go deep with 200 people. Right? Jesus had 70 disciples that he sent out. Out of the 70, he had 12 that were close. Out of the 12, he had three in his inner circle. Jesus had three in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so hopefully, we have close people. And what would that friend look like? That friend would look like somebody who loves me enough to tell me the truth. The beauty about marriage is marriage holds a mirror up for us daily to show us how selfish we are daily. That's good. It's ugly to acknowledge. It's ugly to come to grips with, but that's what marriage does. It shows us, wow, I'm so selfish. Did you see what I did? I took the big piece of the steak at the darn. But it looks so good. I had to have it, you know. I mean, it's just daily, daily. It's funny. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, but a brother, somebody who, is, who I have fellowship with, like that, that phileo, right? That brotherly love. Somebody who I'm very close to is born for adversity. When I go through the most difficult things and the most difficult times, I want somebody there like David and Jonathan who were just so close. It said their love surpassed the love that you can experience with a woman. Just the closeness of a friendship that they were able to experience. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. You have to have friends that walk in wisdom. Because we live in this world. We work in this world. Most of us work with non-believers. At some point, right? We, we cross the paths of these people that we spend time with. And again, those people have influence in our lives. Many of us have family members that don't know the Lord. And we have to interact with them. We have to. Now, I just kicked them out of the curb, dude. I just stay at home all day, every day. No. You're a light. The light's supposed to shine in the midst of darkness. You were saved so that you can be able to share with people who don't know the Lord so that they can come to the Lord. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Last verse. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The importance of individuals who are willing to speak truth into your life cannot be undermined. I hope and pray that you have individuals that love you so much, they're willing to tell you the truth, whether it's good and positive or whether it's not so good. And if you don't have that, I feel very, very bad for you. Because though you have created a fortress so that nobody can penetrate it and you think you're well, I guarantee you, Based on the word of God, I can tell you that you are sick and you don't even know it. If you have nobody in your life that is willing to hold up a mirror enough to let you see that you have blind sides, trust me, we all do. And so this individual 
New king comes into power, receives foolish counsel through it. He ends up destroying his nation. God's got David's back. David's seeking the Lord. He's at the pinnacle of his life with the Lord. May we learn from David that when we have mountaintop experience, we need to be on guard. When we are walking strong, we need to be alert. We need to be sober and vigilant, vigilant, the Bible says in 1 Peter, knowing that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so whether in strength or in weakness, we got to know that we're in a war, we're in a battle. The Bible declares in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. A stronghold is a lie or a misconception that you and I believe about truth, the Bible, or God. That's a stronghold. And so we pull down those strongholds. We break down those strongholds as we move into the promises of God, as we move forward in the things of God, as we move and possess our possessions that God has for us to take, as we just walk faithfully with what he's calling us to. We don't have to worry about way over there. We just have to back life up to today, to right now, and be faithful right here. Walk in the light that God is providing for you one step at a time. He's not going to ask you to jump the Grand Canyon. Sometimes we feel that, oh my gosh, i got to take a step of faith. Calm down, calm down. Step of faith is walking in the light that God's providing for the next step. And then he'll light up the next step. And then he'll light up the next step. Calm down. You know, it's not that, no, you don't understand. It's a step. You're taking a step of faith. You're walking in the light. God's proven his trustworthiness. Take him at his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction that your word brings. And we pray, Father, that uh, we would, on purpose, connect ourselves with godly people that love you and have permission to speak truth into our lives. No matter how they bring it, Lord, help us to receive the percentage that we own. Thank you so much for friendship and the wonderful things that you want us to experience on earth. I pray, Father, that we would have a heart as yours to, to love people, to want to be around people, to be influenced by people and to be an influence in people's lives. And so be with us in that, Lord, as we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.